Earlier this month, I decided to paint our kitchen, eating, family room area. So I got busy emptying the room of everything in it so that I could paint. I was shocked how much junk was hiding in plain sight. Magazines lingered in open spaces, knickknacks collected on empty counters, coffee tables and a small servery piece of furniture were all placed in open spots. I couldn't believe how much junk collected in a room that we used all the time and we didn't even really notice it. You know, that happens in our lives too. In particular, the rooms of our heart. Now, uh, one of my favorite metaphors for the heart is a big building, like a big barn that, that's huge, but has a whole lot of different rooms that are all through it. And there are all kinds of rooms in our heart. There are rooms like a money room or a relationship room, maybe a room for our fathers, a room for our mothers, a room for our siblings, a room for our spouses, a room for our children, a room for our parents. All these relationships have little rooms in our heart. There's money rooms. There's sex rooms, how we view and handle sex. There's a room that contains our passions, a room that contains our dreams, a room that contains our workplace and our relationships at work, a room that contains our attitudes, the things that we think and how we respond to things. There's all these rooms are in our heart. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you have surrendered your life to him, believing by faith that he died on the cross and his death on the cross and his resurrection paid for our sins to reconcile us with God, well, then Jesus is now the Lord of your life. And he says and takes the right to walk into our rooms, open up the doors, bring light, and begin to clean them out, fix the messes, and dispel the darkness, and get rid of the dust and the things that are causing troubles. And he brings new life into these rooms in our hearts so that we honor him with those areas of our lives and he can use them for his purposes. That process is called sanctification. It's called making new the areas of our lives so they come into alignment with God's will and his purposes for us. Now the thing is, Jesus by his power will make the changes that need to happen in a room. But in order for it to happen, he also requires us to own our own stuff. And when I say own our own stuff, I mean, we have to be willing to admit where there's a mess and that it needs to be cleaned out. We've got to agree with Jesus. Yeah, that's a mess and it needs to be dealt with. And then we need to repent and join with him through our spiritual disciplines and exercises to begin to clean out these different rooms in our lives. But here's the problem. When I feel tired or apathetic or I'm struggling, I don't really have the energy to want to own my stuff. Especially in COVID, when I think about uh, the emotional energy that's being expended dealing with my job and my family and my responsibilities and my own issues around isolation and how I you know, need that emotional strength to deal with that, I just don't feel like I have the energy to do some interior renovation on some rooms in my heart. 
And in fact, sometimes I feel entitled. Well, God, I'm, I'm working hard at leading the church. I'm working hard at leading the staff. I'm working hard at trying to care for people. I, I don't need to work on my own heart too. I just don't have the bandwidth for it. And maybe you feel that way too. You just don't right now have the bandwidth for it. But here's the problem. Jesus comes into the rooms of our heart most often and, and most powerfully when we're in trials and when we're in difficulties and when we're in tests, that's the purpose for them. They're designed to reveal what's going on in the rooms in our heart. And that's the time when he wants us and needs us and calls us to own our stuff and deal with the issues he's putting his finger on. To deal with the issues that he's finding when he opens up these doors in our hearts. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. As for other matters, so Paul's moving on from what he was previously talking about. Brothers and sisters, he's talking to the whole congregation, to every Christian. We instructed you how to live in order to please God. As in fact you're living. We told you how you need to live to please God. And you guys have been doing it. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. You've been doing it. But I'm going to urge you to keep going, keep going, keep moving. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of our Lord Jesus. Now, what Paul is suggesting here in these verses is that sanctification, the changing of a person's heart and their lives, our passions, desires, our thoughts, attitudes, dreams, all that, it's not, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like a one-time event. When we pray to receive Jesus or we prayed at some retreat or during some service or after some trial, it's not like God wipes away and we're changed totally all at once. Holiness is a pursuit. It's a lifelong pursuit. And so when we are following God, it's not a one event type of thing. It's something that takes a whole lifetime. Now, some sins God deals with quicker than others. And occasionally we get lucky and he gives us that one overnight event. But generally speaking, heart change in the rooms of our heart is an ongoing long-term process of walking hand in hand with Jesus and owning our stuff through repentance, confession, and then spiritual exercises. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, Being confident of this, that he, meaning God, who began a good work on, in you, he began it in you. He will carry it on to completion. It's not something that happens overnight. It's something that happens really every day, every hour, every minute of our lives. Now, by the way, uh, the fact that it's a process means that there is no expectation from Jesus on us that we should be perfect. When Jesus saved us, he knew we were fix fixer-uppers. And he, he knows that we won't be perfect this side of heaven. So Jesus is not looking for perfection in us. You shouldn't feel that pressure on you, nor should you put that pressure on anybody else. That's where we have grace and patience with each other, with our kids, with our spouse, with one another. But what Jesus is looking for is that we own our stuff. In other words, that we have a repentant and humble spirit where that when he points out rooms in our lives that need to be cleaned up, that need to be addressed, that we're willing to go there with him. And so that's why this is a process because God will sometimes move into an area, a room in our heart, 
touch on it, move off to another room, come back to it. Or sometimes he goes right into it and stays there until it's perfectly clean. And what he requires from us is a heart that is willing to go there with him to own our stuff. Now, the first room that Paul is going to deal with is the sex room. Now, the first room that Paul wants to go into with the Thessalonians is the sex room. And it's a big room. Paul writes in verse 3, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctified means holy or set apart, different. You see, our culture and our world says sex is an idol. We use sex to feel fulfilled, to feel important, to feel close to other people, to, to get a sense of belonging, a sense of fulfillment. And therefore, when God's word is restrictive of sex, it's viewed as those prohibitions are viewed as harmful and uh, oppressive and uh, unnecessary. Our culture says, have sex whenever you want with whoever you want. It's your body, it's your choice, you do it. Whether it's heterosexual sex, homosexual sex, whether it's sex you view online or sadistic sexual practices, if everybody is okay with it, then you should feel free to do it because that's how you will find fulfillment. But God puts restrictions on sex because God knows that sex is a consuming idol. That sex will not actually fill us. Only God can fill us. Only God can give us meaning. Only God can give us substance in our souls. Sex will actually take away from that over time. Sex is a gift and it's to be used in marriage. And outside of that, it's destructive to us. And sex is also a way, when we sanctify it, that we are able to take self off the throne and put God on the throne. And so that's why Paul says, when it comes to sex, it's God's will that you be sanctified, you be holy, that you live out your sexual life like he tells you to. So it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Interesting word Paul uses here, avoid it. It means to stay away from it. Don't go near it. In Corinthians, Paul uses the word flee. Flee from all sexual immorality. And what I find interesting about us as people, all of us, is we tend not to flee sexual temptation, but to try to get as close as we can to it without actually committing any wrong. We're like the moth that tries to get close to the flame. You want to get close to feel the the joy and the exhilaration of the warmth, but we don't want to get burned. But what happens is because sex is such a powerful passion in our lives, when we, when we try to get near it instead of running away from it, we tend to get burned and we tend to get injured by it and we tend to cross the line away from being sanctified. So Paul says, avoid sexual immorality that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathens who do not know God. Now, uh, it's interesting here that he says we need to learn to control our own body. The moment we are strongest when it comes to sexual temptation is when we make the choice whether we're going to lean into it or flee from it. 
That's the moment when we have the most control. That's the moment when we have the most strength to call on God. And in that moment, either we cry out to God and say, God, you got to help me. I'm, I'm really attracted to her. I'm really attracted to him. I really want to watch what I'm seeing on the screen, but I'm calling on you to help me. Or we choose to, well, uh, I, I won't stay long, or it's not that bad, or I'll just take a, one look. And in that moment, we are the strongest and the most capable and ready to call on God. After that, once the passion ignites and fires, our ability to withstand it just drops drastically. And so that's how we learn to control our body. We choose every sin, it's not just sexual sin, every sin. There's a moment when we choose whether we're gonna seek God or we're gonna satisfy self. And in that moment, we call on God and ask for the power of God to take us out of this temptation. Now notice what else he says, and that in this matter, in this area of our sexual activity and our behavior, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Now I find that very interesting, the insight of what Paul is giving us of how God looks at sex when it's not within the relation, responsible relationship of a married couple. He says first that nobody should wrong, and it means to transgress or to break a law. And I thought, well, what law is being broken? See, our culture says, well, if you, everybody loves one another, every, you don't even have to love each other, you just have to be consensual, it's okay. But God says, no, no, it breaks the law of love. You see, sex used, to have sex with somebody else who's not your spouse, who you're not committed to and in a relationship that you've committed to, means that you are using them to satisfy yourself. And that's not loving. It's selfish. It may be prideful. It may be boastful. It may be passionate, but it isn't loving. And God says, when you have sex with somebody who's not your spouse, you are breaking the law of love. It is an act that breaks the law of love because love always seeks the best for another person and to use them for your own passionate pleasure is not love. Then he also says that you cheat them. Not only do you transgress uh, and, and you cheat that person. And the term there is used of a person in a market who might have scales and they put uh, what you're going to buy on a scale and then they put some weights to determine um, how much it costs and they use false weights so they can cheat you from the price and get from you what is rightfully yours. And when we engage in sexual activity with somebody who is not our spouse, what we are doing is taking from them something that does not belong to us and taking from their spouse, their eventual spouse, something that only belongs to the spouse. Now you may not think it's that, but that's how God looks at it. And that's why God says, um, Paul says in the follow-up, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. You know, sometimes people laugh at the thought that God's gonna punish them for sex. I mean, how oppressive and narrow can God be? But God says, no, you don't understand. It violates love and it steals from people. 
because God says he's going to deal with it because he did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. That's the calling that he has on us as followers of Jesus. That's how we honor God and clean out this room in our lives is by being pure and listening to and obeying his word. And therefore, Paul says, anyone who rejects this instruction. So if, you're, if you hear this and you're living in a sexual relationship that, with a person that is not your spouse or you're having sex with somebody that's not your spouse, he said, you're not rejecting a human being, but you're rejecting God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Well, this is serious stuff for God and it has serious ramifications. And sometimes I wonder if in our lives, the issues we're having with our children, the issues we're having in our marriage, the issues we're having with our family, the issues that we're having in our business, the issues that we're having with our spouse is not the direct movement of God judging us because of our unwillingness to listen and obey the calling and the truth that he gives us in this passage. So what do you do if you're involved in sexual sin right now or have been and it's really plaguing you? And when you read words like we just read, you feel deep conviction about it, uh, shame, shame maybe, guilt, whatever it is. How do you handle that? Well, the first thing is, is you confess. You have to admit what you did with whom you did it. And that may, that certainly involves confessing to God, but it may also involve confessing to another person. And maybe the person you had sex with and you need to say it was wrong and you want to move on and ask for their forgiveness. Or maybe uh, somebody took from you uh, what was yours before you ever arrived on the scene and it's bothered you. And so forgiveness starts with admitting that there's a problem, identifying who the problem is with, and then identifying what they took from you. And then you take the step of saying, God, I release them from the debt. In fact, say their name, I release blank from the debt. And then I hand it to you, God, that you will deal with it in your grace and in your justice and in your wisdom. You see, when we transgress the law of love, the law of God, there are consequences to it. But when we give it to God, he's the one that will work out the consequences and the results. We leave it in his hands because all confession starts with recognizing who it is that hurt us, what it is that they owe us, canceling that debt and then handing it over to God. So Paul closes uh, one door of the heart, the sex room, and he moves in now to a second room uh, in the hearts of the Thessalonians, uh, the room of loving one another. Now about your love for one another, you see this, the new door in the heart is love for one another. We don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. You know, we don't even really need to write this, Paul says, because you're doing it so well. And he writes it, even though he doesn't need to, as an encouragement to them. He says, in fact, you do love all God's family, not just in Thessalonica, but throughout all of Macedonia, the whole province. I mean, your love is an exceptional example. Yet, remember this, we're in a process, we keep growing. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And when I read that verse, 
Like Paul just touches on this door of their heart. He said, hey, God's working in your heart. He's doing it just, I'm just encouraging you to keep growing in love. And I thought of Springville. I thought we realized uh, when we received the vision uh, from God and as we sought him and we said, you know, we need to double our impact. And by that, what we were saying is we feel this is the time God is calling us to reach out in fresh and new and more intentional ways to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that if we do that, we will see people come to Christ, so we will double our impact. Double our impact in the number of people that come to Christ, double our impact as people are discipled and they grow in their faith, as they reach out to other people, as we give to noble causes, as we bring families in and help them grow. It would just double the impact of what God is doing in people's lives here in York region. And we immediately knew that we need to learn to love one another. And that's why you keep seeing that sign, love one another. That, that reaching people is not you know, providing a slick gospel presentation. It's not um, being uh, the in church. It, it's loving people, like Jesus said. And so uh, that's why we have really focused on my four, encouraging you to choose people and asking God for people who will... He will reach through you as you intercede for them. You go to God and pray for them. And then you invest love in them. And then when you have gained credibility and trust, that you invite them into exploring the gospel. But also we, we, we realize we've got to do this as a church. And that's why we did the big Christmas offering and then in Easter did the big give. And you know, this is where you have shined. We have given more than $100,000 in the last few months to organizations in our community around us who are doing good for other people. And they're not all Christian organizations. Some are, but some aren't. Because we believe that as the greatest way that we can show love is to give to these people and organizations and to serve them. In Spring Valley, you have been incredible. That, that that much money, we couldn't serve because of COVID, but we hope in the future to be able to come alongside, not just give money, but to serve. But we are communicating intentionally the love of Jesus Christ. And you have done it well. And I just say Paul's word, let's make sure we do this more and more. We keep growing. And so that we are able to give of ourselves and of our resources to help love and care for people around us who are doing good work for the well-being of other people to share the love of Christ through our giving and serving to them. Now the final door that Paul wants to open into the room of our hearts is <clears throat> our testimony uh, with people that are outside the faith. Notice in these verses, Paul writes, Now I want you to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. In other words, remember, these people are under uh, persecution and opposition. This is not the time to be out in the squares and and yelling your message. This is not the time for you to demand your rights. I mean, when you're being shot at, you get low and stay low and don't make a target. And I think that's why he's telling I want you to live a quiet life. I mean, there are times to speak out, but there are also times to not speak and to be quiet. And he says then, uh, I want you to mind your own business and work with your own hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you'll not be dependent on anyone. And so he goes, stop getting your nose involved in other people's business, but instead work hard 
Be known as the person that isn't the consumer, but the contributor. Be known as the person that is credible, that you can depend on, you can rely on. When people come to you for a product, you make sure it's the best that you can give them. When, when people come to you for a service, you always give them your best. Never mind getting involved in all the issues and topics that are going on around you and get involved in other people's business. Instead, have credibility and be a person that people can rely on because when you have credibility, your words have impact. And you know, sometimes we've got a lot to say, but we haven't proven ourselves. And so that's why when we're talking about our four, we, you know, we say do the three eyes when you're reaching out to your my four. And the reason intercede and invest is first is because that's how we gain credibility. People go, this person is not a wingnut. They're a person who's respectable. And maybe when they invite me to something, I should listen to them. But when we just come barging in before we've had time to pray and intercede for them and invest in them, it's easy to write people off because they're only interested in themselves. You know, I uh, wish somebody had told me that when I was younger. I came to Christ in my final year of high school and I was really zealous for the faith. And I would tell everybody about Jesus and that, you know, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. And I, I would come home almost every day and tell my mom and my dad and my three sisters that day after day after day. Now, it's true if a person doesn't put their faith in Jesus Christ, they'll be separated him from ever. But saying it every day is a little bit over the top. And what was happening is I was becoming so obnoxious in my testimony and speaking that I didn't realize that I, didn't, I was losing credibility, not gaining it. In fact, it got to the point where my dad had to sit me down and say, if you don't stop, you're gonna have to leave the house. Now, when, for the first few years after that happened, I thought I was being persecuted by my own family and I kind of wore it as a badge of honor. But the more I reflected and looked back on it, I realized it's not a badge of honor, it was that I was so obnoxious that they couldn't stand me anymore. And see, nobody told me that. That first you need to gain credibility with people. In fact, I was sitting in Dr. Michael Green's class in seminary, he taught evangelism, and he said, don't say a word till your life has shown that you are living consistently with the message you're about to preach. See, I didn't realize that I needed to gain credibility first. So here we are in our COVID test. The Thessalonians, they were in their persecution test. And when you're in a test, you don't feel like you have the energy, the strength, the desire even to uh, deal with these renovation issues that Jesus wants to deal with in our hearts. But the whole fact that we're in a test has a purpose and the purpose is to point out the things that do need to be renovated. And Jesus is calling us to own our stuff. Now maybe that's you owning the anger you have toward your boss. That room needs to be dealt with. Maybe in your marriage, it's the resentment or the unforgiveness that you have toward your spouse. And Jesus is calling you into that room. It could be in your parenting. Maybe you're absent or maybe you're a helicopter parent that won't let your kids go. Or maybe you're just too demanding and you're exasperating and God's calling you into that room in your heart own your stuff and to deal with it. It could be an attitude, an attitude of pride, arrogance, insecurity, which is really the reverse, the other side of pride. 
I, I, I need you to fortify me and make me feel good about myself because I don't, because I'm worthy of it and I need it and I have to have it. Whatever it is, whatever room it is, whether it's a work room, a money room, a sex room, a love room, whatever it is, the question is, are you gonna own your stuff and call on Jesus to help you do the renovations in your heart? Jesus, you speak to us in the middle of trials and tests and reveal our hearts and what's true about them and you offer to transform us by your presence. Grant us the courage to own our stuff, to admit what's true about us, to confess it, to repent from it, and to begin to talk to whoever we need to talk to, to begin to put spiritual exercises in place that will give us the strength that we receive from you in your presence to be able to battle and start to win and clean out these rooms that you're opening up. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.